a new team, a reunion, and a fight. We got that and a lot more on this episode of the Indie Ball Report podcast. Alright, we are back again this week. I'm Nick, he's Will, and we got a lot of stuff to jam into about, oh, an hour and 20 minutes. So, instead of doing a normal preamble, I guess we could probably get into the news. Yeah, and there's a lot of it. Yeah, there's just, like, a lot of stuff happening. I guess we'll start with the with the news that started coming out yesterday, and actually that I kind of broke yesterday, and then we'll kind of go from there. So, for a while now, we've known that Quebec could be going home. They could be returning back to play both in Three Rivers and in Quebec City, of course. And yesterday, I had it told to me from, I'd say, a very good source. I know they work with uh, one of the teams up there. And uh, they did tell me that the plan, as of right now, is for Quebec City to begin playing home games again on July 30th. The plan is to get the players across via work visa, so that way they'll be allowed in. And uh, tickets should go on sale as soon as the Canadian government gives them the green light to do so. Seating capacity is expected to be at a little under 3,000 as of right now. And so I guess with that bit of news, you could also well ponder the thought of what this means for Winnipeg but before we get on to what that means for Winnipeg I guess we should talk about the immediate impact on what that has for Kip Quebec who will be uh you know finally getting a chance to play some home games I know players and coaches have been rather tired of having to constantly live on the road constantly play on the road so being able to finally have a place even if it is only for a month and a half essentially is still you know, a huge advantage for them to at least have a place where they can call home in some sense. Yeah, it's, it's awesome for the fans out there. And uh, I, I could just say I'm happy for them. That's probably an understatement. I know the fans, they've been without baseball out there for a long, long time. And, you know, I mean, in general, they've been without sports out there for a long time. I mean, of course, you had like the NHL playoffs where you could get some fans in, but I mean, it wasn't. I mean, capacity wasn't that much, and of course, those tickets are extremely hard to get. So it's just at least giving Canadians um, a, just at least a night out to go to like an independent league baseball game, and I mean, it, it's awesome for the fans. Super excited for them. It's really awesome for for Quebec. If you remember from before the season, when I was pretty, uh, I, I was pretty doubtful to say the least that this would ever happen, and I'm glad I'm wrong. You know, this team, Equipe Quebec, they're a good team that they're very much in the playoff race, currently just a half game out of the division lead. And as I've talked about on the show many times, we could analyze the roster from top to bottom, but what you can't really predict is how playing every single game on the road with as, as decent of a team as they do have, playing every game on the road it, it takes an immeasurable toll uh, come, come to the end of the season. Then it's really a disadvantage that Tri-City and New York don't have to deal with in that division. Well, now that goes away, even if it's just for the last or so, the last five weeks or so. Mm. So really awesome for the players, coaching staff there, uh, and, and of course the fans are huge winners 
uh, in all this. So they have a baseball team, a uh, baseball game to go to, uh, a baseball team to root on. Uh, and it's just really exciting for everyone involved. And I'm glad it, it, it finally, uh, although I guess it's not completely, completely done, but at this point, I mean, it's, it's, it's really exciting that it's pretty much done and that it's a pr- pretty much a certainty that they'll have baseball back in Canada at long last. Yeah, it, it's not quite done yet. There's still a little bit of red tape that needs to get done, but I'd say about it's about as close as you could possibly get to being at 100% without being at 100% of a lock. And you are right. It's nice to finally be able to kind of reopen Canada a little bit. Obviously, I think there's still the issue of right now you can fly into Canada, but going across the border on land is an issue. Now, I'm not sure if having the work visas kind of, you know, negates that issue. I'm not sure if the Canadian government's going to kind of make an exemption for sports players to be able to cross the border. But what I do know is that the league clearly has a plan. The teams clearly have a plan. And as long as the plan is able to be executed, that's all that really matters. And uh, more to the on the field aspect, like you said, a disadvantage that the team was at having to play on the road and constantly travel around. And it wasn't like they were just traveling around and playing in their immediate area, although that's a large chunk of their games. If I'm not mistaken, they had to start their season out kind of more in the Midwest as yeah. on the road there. So it is a disadvantage certainly for them there. And now you could almost argue that the advantage swings in their favor a little bit for when they're on home stands and whatnot. Because now you're going to have teams from, you know, this general area, this tri-state area, have to go all the way up into Canada to play all the way up there when that's certainly not an easy bus trip. It's certainly a long one. And that has its own advantage to being able to say, all right, these guys just were on, what, a six and a half, seven, eight hour long bus trip. And now they have to play baseball the next day or in some cases, you know, same day. That's certainly not uh, an easy task to do, especially when you've been sleeping at home in your own bed for the past week. It's that is its own advantage and it may help kind of level it out for the last month plus, which is certainly something you have to keep in mind here. But it's in any case, great news for Quebec. And then just before moving on from this, I do want to throw out here. I wonder what the deal is with Winnipeg, because I know Manitoba's restrictions are different from what Quebec's are. I want to say that they are not as strict, but obviously the situation is a little bit different there because, well, the Gold Ice have a lease with the city of Jackson, Tennessee to play the rest of the season out there. So right. I, I don't know how that's going to work. I imagine they're going to say, well, if you can let this other team that's on equal level to us play at home, play in Canada, then we should be allowed to play at home and play in Canada. And I have to imagine it's a lot more profitable to be playing in Winnipeg than it is to be playing in Tennessee, even if you do have to wind up eating the last two months of that lease. So I wonder how that will wind up playing out in the end. Yeah, that's a good point. I think think Winnipeg certainly would rather play in Canada. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But, you know, the question is, would they be able to get out of that that lease in Jackson, Tennessee, for one? And is there any language in that lease to begin with? Uh, you would think that was that's a possibility that the Gold Eyes Brass would have thought of while they're making the lease. So while they were creating the lease with the city of Jackson, uh, so 
I'm I'm sure there's something in there, or that they've already kind of discussed this. That hey, if we're allowed to go back, this we're either staying here full time no matter what, or we're allowed to go back to Winnipeg. So I'm not. It's hard to say without knowing the specifics of that of the specific wording of the of the lease between the Gold Eyes uh, and Jackson, Tennessee. But you would certainly hope they're allowed uh, to go back to Winnipeg because that again, that's that's a big difference. Uh, that's a that's a game changer for Winnipeg in the same way that it that it's a a big advantage for a big advantage for Quebec. So you you just hope that happens, and I'm I'm sure the Gold Eyes players uh, would be thrilled about it too. It would obviously be a huge advantage there to go back there, but you are right; it does come down a lot to the the terms of the lease, and and we'll have to see how that works out. I know rumor has it that they were painting the outfield wall or kind of getting the ballpark ready now i don't know if that's just kind of like standard oh well, we got to do this for upkeep so that way in 22 we're able to be able to just jump right back into it or if that's uh we're getting ready to come back type thing but hey either way we'll have to wait and see and we got a lot more to cover so we're going to keep rolling here and we're going to keep talking about uh well the frontier league and in from I expose it was good news, positive news. We go to news that I wouldn't really quite classify as positive news in that uh, last night, again, we had a bit of an incident at the New Jersey and Sussex game to start it from the beginning. I believe it's like Frank the Tank or someone like that. It's one of the Barstool guys. I don't Exactly. Yeah, like like Frank the Tank, something like that. I'm not I'm not huge into them, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't really know. But I, yeah. I, mean, I think it's like that really like the, that he's like a Mets fan. He's like that really like big dude. Yeah, yeah. That that's the guy it is. So I'm I believe that's who it is. I the only reason I'm questioning this is because I again I'm like yeah well I I really don't particularly you know no bar stool at all. I personally don't really care for them, so. Yeah, so it started with him coming to the ball game, and I think the plan was for him to do like a hot dog review and throw out a first pitch. You know, essentially, it's a PR deal to get some Barstool fans, some stoolies into the actual uh, gates themselves, get them into the game. And naturally, the problem is Barstool fans typically tend to be college-age guys. So when you bring them in and it's dollar beer night, it feels like you raise the probability of there being an incident. In this particular case, the main incident was in the seventh inning where we picked this up. We saw a video of players in the stands, both minor players, and I believe there was a handful of Jackal players in the stands there. What I could gather, because I saw the video, I was like, oh shit, okay, I gotta look into this. Supposedly, from everyone I talked to and from what I saw on Twitter, someone was throwing beer into the minor dugout. That caused a problem, obviously. Either words were exchanged or they refused to stop, so then the minor players took matters into their own hands to go into the stands to make them stop. Now, in the video and from the people I talked to, I couldn't see anyone actually throw a punch. All I could see was a bunch of players kind of mingling around and intertwined with people. And I do know from people I talked to, a lot of those people in that area, supposedly the people either that were near the beer thrower, that were beer throwers, 
were booted from the stadium. A couple people were apparently arrested. So I don't know everything around there. There's still a lot that's kind of to be figured out. Because again, at the time we're recording this, this all happened about mm, 12 to 15 hours ago. So there's still a lot that needs to be sorted out here. But the general gist is players went into the stands uh, over some sort of a beer throwing incident. It wasn't the first thing that happened last night. One person I talked to said that apparently one of the outfielders had their hats stolen from them by one of the guys. Uh, apparently they had it resting in like a camera well or something like that. And someone reached over and just took the hat from him. So it was a kind of an ongoing thing all night. Obviously it's kind of blown up a bit now. I think Barstool put it on their like main page too. So that's not great. And then just to really add fuel onto this fire, apparently both uh, the deputy commissioner, Steve Tassler, and I believe Kevin Wins now the one of the directors of the Frontier League, both of them were in the house. So two of the top three in upper management of the Frontier League were in attendance to witness all this. So that's not great. <laughs> yeah, it, the situation obviously is terrible. Uh and you're right, the fact with, you're bringing in the Barstool crowd to begin with. And of course, listen, I mean, they've brought in guys from Barstool before. I don't think that's a bad thing, necessarily, uh, because, you know, it attracts a lot of people to the to the ball game. Again, Yogi Bear Stadium's right on a college campus. So yeah. uh, it, it, is, it is the perfect place to bring in, like, for example, I believe last year they brought in Marty Mush, uh, yeah. one of the big, one of the big gambling guys, he took a couple of bats. So you know, and all and all that's fun, and I I I don't I don't have an issue at all uh, with 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 bringing him in, considering of course it's not like Frank the Tank or whatever his name is. It's not it, it, he he wasn't directly causing the problem, so I'm not going to go ahead and, and blame him. Yeah, uh, no, it, it, that, bringing them in is just knowing your crowd. They know that they have a bit of a younger fan base, so and they're yeah. on a college campus, so bringing in people that's popular with that group is a good idea. So of course, yeah, it that that's so much as that. Yeah. So that that I certainly don't have a problem with. Now, when you combine that with Dollar Beer Night again, are the are the Jackals directly responsible for what happened? No, but you're really you're really playing with fire when uh when you do that when when you make sure it's on a, a Thursday Thursday Dollar Beer Night because I will say I. I, I did go to a, um, a Thursday game in uh, the All-American Baseball Challenge in 2020, so last summer. And honestly, I didn't even know it was Dollar Beer Night until I got to the game. Uh, <laughs> so it, it certainly wasn't a, a planned in advance thing. But when I say it was probably the most rowdy minor league game I've ever been to in my life, I, I mean it. Like, And I've been to a gazillion minor league games in my life i'm talking like affiliated independent like all of them like i've been to a ton i have never seen a crowd as rowdy as it as it was that night i believe it was like the wise guys and the jackals were playing and like there was a point because the game went to a home run derby like the, like a bunch of the kids like the jackals won the home run derby they were like on the wise guys dugout like like ju- like dancing on their dugout like it was it was just complete mayhem and honestly, I remember being surprised that night that there wasn't 
whether it's like from the jackals or like the police, I'm, I'm not exactly sure of the, the security specifics there normally, but there, I remember there not being a large security presence, even when you could see that, all right, we're not completely out of control yet, but we're starting to get there. It's not like you needed someone to come, come in there and start like arresting people and kicking people out. Like I, it wasn't at that point, but you just needed someone there. So people know that you can't, you can't act out of control because there's someone from the team just hanging around there. Yeah. That, I, wonder, I, I just want to cut. Also, it doesn't sure. help that most of the people that work there are kind of older people or really young interns. So yeah. it's not exactly like when you see them, you're like, oh, okay, I, if I get out of line here, I'm going to get manhandled or there's going to be a problem right. for me. It's like, okay, so I'm going to deal with a 65 year old retiree or someone my own age. It's like, okay, I can handle that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's not, it's not, I'm not even thinking of it from like a physical standpoint. Uh, it's yeah. more just like, at least, at least when I was there, there really didn't seem to be a big, um, security presence. I can't imagine there was a big one last night. And so, if it got to a point where it literally like we're having beer thrown in the dugout, like where, where is the staff? Like where is like the security on site to make sure that something like that doesn't escalate and the people who are involved with that are removed from the ballpark? Like I'm, I, I just don't know how it gets to that point where the minors players are like, all right, we're completely on our own and, and not to justify running into the stands and throwing punches at people. But I'm more saying, how does it get to the point where the minors players feel like, all right, well, no one's in here protecting us. We got to protect ourselves. Again, not justifying going into the stands, but at the same time, there's got to be, there's got to be like a better security, even if it's just for this night specifically. You have to know that, you know, not, not to say that they could have seen this coming. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But yeah. you do you do need to have at least heightened security. You need to have a better idea that, you know, this crowd's going to be a little bit rowdier and it only takes one guy to do something like unbelievably stupid, like throwing a beer in a dugout to spark something. And then that's what happened last night. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like, again, I don't want to blame like all the Barstool people. I don't even want to say that they were directly involved because, you know, it's, we don't know who exactly it was that threw the beer. It's just when you have a night that's kind of set up for younger people and you have a night that already is like, okay, it's going to be a rowdier night because cheap beer. Like you said, you're playing with fire. You're asking for issues to come to that point. And getting to that point, there should have been more done. That, and I, I have to imagine the future that maybe you want to block off a couple of rows behind the dugouts to prevent this kind of thing from happening. So that sure. way, that may be a way of getting around it. Cause I have to imagine there's an increased liability concerns coming about here. Because if that would have been happening, and let's say there was a family nearby and for whatever reason they didn't want to move, and then you had players coming to the stands and you had a drunks going at it with the players and there's a family involved there if someone gets hurt now we have a giant liability issue and the matter just got worse it got dramatically worse very quickly so i don't know how that goes i mean i highly doubt you're going to see the end of, of either one of these things of having you know 
people that are going to draw other people out to the ballpark show up as a guest appearance. And I doubt even more highly that you're going to see the end of Dollar Beer Night because that's an extremely profitable night for minor league baseball teams. So it like I agree with you that I don't know how this really happens. And it just seems like the writing's kind of on the wall, I feel like, when you can tell when a crowd's about to get out of control. And, like, there's signs leading up to it. It's not like someone just walks down and starts throwing beer into a dugout. And if that's the case, they stand out. And you can remove them quickly and prevent the problem from happening. It's just... You cannot get to that point. And now, you especially have a bad PR look. Like, there's two schools of thought on the matter. Well, one, you know, obviously it's a black eye type thing. You don't want to have the reason you're known, especially now the second time the Jackals are really, well, third time, I guess you could ask, because last year's with, uh, with Marsh or Mash or however the hell you say his last name, uh, he, you got headlines for that and nothing went wrong there. But the other time they were in the headlines was, you know, the Matt Latos fight. And now you have this fight. So I understand those are two very different things, but you're kind of known as the fight club team. And I'm sure League Brass that was in attendance, like I mentioned earlier, isn't thrilled with being known as the, the league with the fight club team. So that's never a good thing there, especially because just, I mean, if you're an outside party looking in, it's kind of a, a little bit of an embarrassment to have that happen. Now, the other hand is, well, hey, any press is good press. And now we just went from probably not getting much readership out of this to getting a lot more mileage out of it. Now, I'm not sure what camp you want to be in there. There's legitimacy to both. I fall more in the, I really wish this didn't happen because the press we're going to get from this is not positive camp. But if I'm looking at it realistically, you probably block off a section or two around a dugout for the next one, maybe the one after that, because most of this will work its way out of the news cycle. And again, I'm not sure exactly what the liability would be here. I'm not sure if you even would have insurance for something like this. I, I assume they probably do. I mean, they sell insurance for everything. So I imagine there is some sort of insurance for this, which helps negate a little bit of liability. Yeah, it's... It's a whole situation that I'm sure everyone involved really wish is, would not have occurred because it makes everything look like a shit show. Yeah, and and when you're looking at you know solutions to this, like to to make sure something like this doesn't happen again, of course, the Jackals should keep bringing in like popular guys, uh, whether they're from Barstool or not. Uh, if they if they want to come in, I know a lot of their off offices are in the New York City area. Not a it's not a difficult ride down to Little Falls. I, I think that that's certainly a good idea. It draws people to the ballpark, and of course, Dollar Beer Night's not going anywhere. And I'm not saying that it should, but it, people are going to get rowdy. You just have to you have to know in advance that people are going to get rowdy, and you have to handle the situation better. You have to, and whether that's going with Nick's idea and uh, and blocking off a few rows in front of the dugout uh, or or you're just having more more security on site just to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again and you know I mean the crowd's going to be rowdier and that's not necessarily 
a bad thing, but you got to keep it off the field and you got to keep it away from the players. And that's the response. That's the responsibility really of the Jackals and all this is to protect, um, is to protect the visiting team from, from something like that. Cause it's not, it's not fair to them where again, jumping into the stands is wrong, but they shouldn't feel like, okay, we, uh, we got to take matters into our own hands at this point. We're having literal full cups of beer chucked at us in the dugout and that's that, that that's not okay and i hope at least for next dollar beer night because you know again you said all press all press is good for us you're probably right in this sense because i bet you for the next dollar beer night it, there's going to be a lot of people in the north jersey area who's like oh my god this happened at the last dollar beer night i need to get to the next dollar beer night and not gonna lie maybe i need to get to a a, a, a jackal's dollar beer night soon just to just the people watch because just thinking about how interesting that first time was i I think that they just have to prepare for a crowd like this better i think that's that's the responsibility of the jackals yeah i i'd agree with that i think that again obviously you can't be climbing into the stands to do you know i guess frontier justice as it were which that may be the name of this episode, Frontier Justice. That would probably work out good. But nice. Some, I love when we stumble across this in the middle of an episode. It works out great. Nice. But, yeah, you can't be having players taking Frontier Justice on rowdy spectators. You can't have rowdy spectators causing problems with players or other spectators. That's responsibility of the team to prevent that situation from even occurring. So when they feel in that responsibility, there's an issue. Like you said, they got to do something. Either they got to go with the with the blocking out the seat idea, which was something that was suggested to me uh, by one of the people I was talking to. You could go with, uh, like you said, just bring in a couple more people to act as security, prevent that from happening. Maybe you could do something to limit the amount of beer that can be purchased per customer. Maybe that helps with it. You just got to do one or two things, I think, preventively to prevent this from kind of getting out of hand. Of course, whenever you're serving alcohol or you have a competitive environment or even worse, when you have all those and you combine them all together, there's going to be incidents like this that happen. There's just no way around it. And there's a certain degree of acceptability to it, you know, but when it gets to the point where, you know, it got to last night, that's no longer acceptable. It, it just cannot happen, and when incidents like that happen, you got to kind of do everything you can to snuff them out quickly and prevent them from happening again. So uh, with that said, I guess we'll move on to the last bit of Frontier League news before we go to the one other piece of news we have. Like I said, it's a busy week here, and quite frankly, I didn't expect it to be that busy. So on Sunday, uh, on during the Sussex County Minor game, our friend Brett Luthner the, had an interview with Steve Tasler during the game. I believe it started around the sixth inning or so and ran for a couple innings, actually. It was a solidly lengthy interview, about a half hour or so. And I took some notes from it. And there's some interesting uh, points to take away from it. First off, the plan for next year <clears throat> is an integrated schedule, which basically means everybody's going to play everybody. Now, you won't have a home-and-home series necessarily. You may not have Florence coming out to New Jersey and then New Jersey going out to Florence, but you will have, say, Lake Erie coming to New Jersey and then New Jersey going out 
to Washington and then you make sure everybody sees everybody is mainly the point here. So all 16 teams will see all 16 teams. That's always great. There is no real timeline as of right now for expanding to 20 teams, although it's not denied that 20 teams is the ultimate goal. They, Steve just kept reiterating that the plan is to uh, be picky when it comes to expansion and that 16 is a good number. They have the luxury of being picky. Supposedly, they were working with London, Ontario's government and maybe getting a new stadium constructed. So maybe London, Ontario could be a location for them. The main plan right now is to look in the Midwest and East Coast for expansion teams. We also got name dropped during this too. Uh, we got the Indie Ball podcast dropped. So appreciate the name drops as always. And uh, one final note here, which to be honest, I kind of find a little bit funny now in light of recent events. Uh, Steve talked about how, because the conversation switched to the Frontier League TV and how all the branding's fairly similar or the images are fairly similar across the board with the teams when it comes to that area. And I said, yeah, we really worked on improving the image of the league through this. And so I just find it kind of funny we talk about improving the image of the league and then you have last night's incident, which uh, on the league spectrum as a whole, I'm sure is not greatly appreciated. Yeah, definitely, definitely not greatly appreciated. I think he's right. I've, I've never been the biggest fan of expanding to 20 teams. I, I, th- I think leagues get in trouble when they set their eyes on a number and, and, and really are thinking in terms of numbers, not in terms of markets. And uh, markets that it would be a good idea uh, to expand to. And it's just hard for me right now to see four mar- different markets right now that the league can expand to. And I'm confident will succeed. So that, that's kind of how I view it. And six, he's right. Sixteen is a sixteen is a great number. I think the league right now uh, is, is in a, is in a great place as far as far as teams. I think especially when you know Ottawa begins play, the league is really in a great place with sixteen teams and integrated schedule where oh, like a legitimate frontier league schedule where you're not seeing like your own division or whatever like for a majority. Uh, of the games which you know you hope after the 2021 season you're kind of just completely back to normal scheduling in all in all leagues uh really the the integrated schedule certainly is great news uh but i I do agree i think expanding to 20 just to expand to 20 is never a good idea and we've seen it before when leagues get desperate as far as expansion they go to they go to markets that probably are not the best idea to go to uh and and it doesn't work they're left to pick up the pieces so i I think 16 is a good number for now it's a great number for, for the moment and there's a great opportunity that pops up then certainly that's a discussion to be had and if you get to 20 down the line uh with adding four four great markets then that's what you get to i'm more i'm more uh pleased to hear that it's not just 20 teams 20 teams we want 20 teams anymore which i kind of felt like it was uh probably about six months ago uh now it's more that we we really like where we're at at 16 teams and we can be picky with expansion i think that's the right way to go about it yeah it definitely is you want solid markets reliable markets quality markets i'm very interested about that whole london situation because obviously it'd be nice to get 
some more teams into Canada. Obviously, if you can add London, then in theory, you could have your own four-team division of just Canadian teams, which would arguably be the right way to go about it. Plus, if you could go back to that old Orchard Beach situation, which was obviously talked about in the dying days of the Can-Am League, or if there is another market somewhere in Canada that you could add a team to, either Quebec or uh, Ontario-wise, a five-team Canadian division would be pretty sweet. I'm not going to lie. In addition yeah. to just being you know, kind of cool to have them all in Canada like that, and also, I imagine, help out on travel an awful lot. And it also make it a little bit more rivalry based, I think, when it's based in your own country, all these teams. Obviously, we'd still see the Canadian teams coming down to the States, so you really want to miss them at all. But it would also just, I think, be easier, not just travel on the Canadian teams, but on the more United States based teams. Because outside of Albany, there really isn't anyone that's even kind of close to the Canadian teams. I guess you could argue like Erie, maybe Washington, but even then it's a little bit of a stretch, I think, to argue that. But regardless, it is good to know that they're not going to rush into it. I think uh, also I like what they are saying about how, look, we're starting to really figure out and really evolve our broadcast. That's something that's very cool to me. Uh, it's, it's something that I'm interested to see how they work with that. And obviously I'd love the thought of being able to see, you know, Every team come through either Yogi Berra, Skylands, or Rockland almost certainly in the course of a year, but definitely in the course of two years. That's something that's very exciting to me because I, that's the thing I would look forward to the most with the merger was seeing all these new teams, all the new logos and players and jerseys and everything like that to add that whole like fresh new coat of paint onto everything and give it that new car smell uh, to teams that really I was used to seeing the same five teams over and over again. So now to be able to see a brand new 11 teams come through is something that's that's great to see. And it's even more important to see that things are progressing positively and that we should be back to normal for next year. That's really exciting because, I mean, how many more Jackals-Miners games? And not, not to say that the Jackals-Miners rivalry isn't great because it is, but, I mean, we see it so much how we see it so much uh so bringing it being able to have like the jackals or the miners or the boulders hosting these teams uh from the midwest is it's really cool and and it's something that i'm definitely i'm definitely excited for and and you got some of it you you got a little taste this year but nothing 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 crazy so that i agree that's something i'm definitely definitely looking forward to uh for for the 2022 season yeah, absolutely there. So with that, we'll go to the last piece of news we have for the day, which is arguably the biggest piece of news from the week, which is baseball is back on Staten Island. Uh, it came through, I believe it was Wednesday, that it came by that the ownership group is now in place for there. There's still the matter of transferring the lease from the nostalgic partners of the formerly uh, Staten Island Yankee owners to the new group. Uh, or I guess suppose to the city rather, because ownership's plan is to lease the stadium through the city. This is going to be an Atlantic League club. Uh, there's $8 million in renovations and upgrades going into the, uh, I think it's Richmond County Savings Bank Park. Although I for, suppose maybe you'll get a new name at, as part of this. I don't know with that a formal no, they have to yeah <laughs> they have to they they cannot possibly be the staten island no no no, no I'm, I'm talking about the ballpark i'm talking about the ballpark oh oh um 
I'm not sure I mean, how that it's deals. Never, it's never a bad thing for for a team like that to lease out naming rights. But, yeah, you know. I'm, I'm just not sure how the the current deal that regards those naming rights exists. I'm not sure it was like, okay, we have the naming rights for this from X date to X date no matter what. Or if it's like, okay, your deal was with them, not with us. So, hey, but if the lease is through the city, then I mean, it will probably keep the same name regardless. Um, a formal yeah. announcement's coming with more than likely within the next 10 days. It seems like it could be done as soon as early as next week. So who knows? A couple of other things of note here. There's going to be a name the team contest, of course, to determine the name. They're going to be putting in a turf field, so that's going to make that ballpark a year-round facility. You can host a lot of things, football, across soccer, concerts, food festivals, music festivals, perhaps even. Who's to say really what you can and can't do there? The sky's the limit now because you're not going to do any damage to the field. And in case you're wondering who's the ownership in this group, you have uh, New Jersey political Eric Scheffler, and then, of course, local New York billionaire John Katzmatis, I believe is how it's pronounced, or Katzmatis. So, you know, just your local billionaire helping out with this. So funding should not be an yeah. issue with this team. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Katzmatis. Good enough for me. Yeah, T-I-D-I-S. Yeah, we'll go with Katzmatis. I'm going with J-C. I'm going to say J-C. J-C, all right. Yeah, so, uh, well, having a billionaire behind the team from New York City, very good. <laughs> that 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 is a that is a great sign uh, for for this new team. And, and listen, we we kind of knew for a while that this was the this was the direction that things were headed in Staten Island. Uh, the fact that they're going to be able to put in eight eight million dollars in renovations that are that are sorely needed uh, to to that ballpark is definitely. Is definitely a great thing uh, because you know the stadium was. I mean, to be honest with you, the stadium's not even really that old. I mean, it's funny and the the difference between MCU Park out in Brooklyn and and uh, Richmond County Ballpark in Staten Island. I mean, they're not they weren't even built that far from each other. It just shows how important stadium upkeep is. But you know, that's not that's obviously not the 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 whole point of this news story. We know the potential of what a Staten Island market could be. And I think that's that's the enticing part. We know what it was uh, at the end of being an affiliated team, which obviously was was pretty depressing. I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, it was uh, a sad state of affairs. It, it was it was bad. When we had Rob Pimsner on, we knew, he he talked glowingly about what this market could be, the potential it could have. Uh, but you know, potential is a funny word, and 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 we'll see how it goes. The location of it couldn't be better. Uh, we, we, you definitely needed another Northeast team, G- given the current slate of teams in the Atlantic League. Uh, it's very, very Southern-based, uh, I guess you could say, at this point. So you definitely needed to go back into a little bit more of the classic tri-state area um, to bring in another team into there. So, I mean... There's a lot of questions that still have to be answered as far as like, what are these renovations going to do? Like, what, like, of course, like the marketing has to be much, much better with this new ownership group, with the new people that they bring in. The potential of it is really exciting. And I think that it's a great thing for the Atlantic League. And if this could work, I do think it could become one of the, one of the better franchises. And of course, the move to uh, artificial turf in the stadium, you're seeing that more and more. 
that that's kind of the new way uh, to build a minor league park. Uh, just so you can have all kinds of sports on it, so and, and all year round, it's a better way to make money. So I think that's definitely a good thing. But you know, it, it's part of part of it in the back of my mind. See, usually I'm like super super excited for a team, and, and you know, I, and I am excited that Staten Island is in. Uh, it's a good location and like, I, like I mentioned, but you know, it, it's hard to, it, it's hard to just put out of your memory how like the state of, I guess what the ballpark was in their last season of play in 2019 and what the attendance was like. That's not something you can just fix overnight. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's not that I'm not confident in it. It's just, there is you know, an image problem. There's no way around yeah. that. Like the last image of baseball on Staten Island was a a team that didn't particularly much care for the community that they needed to support them with. And it was a ballpark that wasn't in the best of shapes. So you have sure. to do something in the community outreach area to change that perception and get people that may not be, you know, paying attention to all the developments, maybe just sees a headline here or there and convince them that, look, no, we are here. We're going to listen to you. We're going to do what the community wants. We're going to make this Stanton Island driven. This is not going to be just a minor league baseball team that plays on Stanton Island. It's going to be Stanton Island's minor league baseball team. Right. And, I mean, you have the money now, and you have the brain power to reach out into that community and, you know, make an impact and get that old image out of their mind. Obviously, like you said, there's a huge opportunity for success here. I mean, as Rob's not shy to point out, Staten Island's bigger than some major league markets. So there is a huge potential to boom here, not just from a, you know, business sense of dollars and outright success like that or on the field success, which I mean, certainly playing in the shadow of Manhattan will certainly help you attract talent. There's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but also just from a traditionalist fan perspective of you have a great opportunity to pack a ballpark every night, have a good product on the field, and have it be a fun and enjoyable night every day of the week. And like you said, with the turf field becoming more and more standardized, it just allows for so much more flexibility to be able to make the ballpark into a community asset, which is clearly what the plan is here. And perhaps that's almost the better course of action because if you can get that turf field in quick enough and you're able to host some sort of an event there at that ballpark when the renovations are done or nearly done before the team starts play, I think you could really convince a lot of people into going, oh, wow, this ballpark's really fixed up. I really want to come back here and see a game here or see a concert here or see, you know, some sort of event here. So I definitely, I really do like the idea. I think there's a huge opportunity for, for success, like you're saying. And it's going to be interesting to see uh, partially where that other Atlantic League team is going to come in here. Because obviously with Staten Island, it's uh, an odd number of teams now. But also, I'm going to be curious to see how the rest of all of this uh, shakes out here. And I think as we get closer and closer, maybe after they announce a name or maybe over the winter again, maybe bring Rob back on to really give us the, the full details about this. Cause he's certainly right on top of all of this information uh, and certainly. how this goes. I mean, just one glance at his Twitter feed and we'll tell you that much. So 
I think it, it's all about changing the image of, of baseball in Staten Island. And that, that's going to be to the ownership group and the people they bring in um, to, to make that happen. So the potential is endless. When, and that's the exciting part. That, that's the exciting part, really. But like you mentioned, nine teams, where does the 10th team come from? I have my ideas. I've said it on the show before. I yeah. think something in Salem, Virginia is going to happen. It wouldn't that's be not, surprising. Yep. That's not based on any sources. That's just me thinking that, again, the ballpark, uh, I mean, just the way that the Lowell Spinners in Massachusetts ended, I guess the president of the Red Sox, Sam Kennedy, said that they'd still like to do something with the Lowell Spinners in the future. And, you know, the Salem Red Sox is, you know, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have an affiliate all the way in, in Salem, Virginia. Uh, for the Red Sox, the ballpark, I, I wouldn't say it's in bad shape, but it's kind of like, eh, I could see that happening. And I'm sure, and, and there was even a, there was even a little report about it, I believe in a, yeah, in there's a, a, a news outlet out in Lancaster. Yeah. There's a little pop-up thing from a while back that did, and then disappeared shortly thereafter. So I wonder what yeah. deals with that, but yeah. Yeah. Which, so not, not sure what's going to happen there, but you know, uh, cause I mean, Hagerstown's not, uh, not yeah, they're still two years away. 23. Yeah, yeah. That's still, that's still a little bit away. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what happens there. And certainly looking forward to the official announcement about Staten Island and, you know, and, and the other, the other thing is, is I'm sure there'll be a press conference of some sort where, you know, some questions are, some questions are asked to the, uh, to the ownership group, and I'm sure some of those questions will be tough ones, and I'm interested to see how those are answered. So, you know, it's it's very interesting, very excited for it, uh, and very excited that it's really hitting tor- heading towards the finish line. Certainly, and the only thing I'm going to close by saying is, Spectrum One News, uh, you need to do a little bit better job uh, checking, uh, because in the one article, you quoted the Atlantic League president, and then you said Atlantic League president Eric White, his name's Rick White, not Eric. So small. Did they actually do that? Yeah, yeah. If you look on the Twitter feed, I I tweeted out that little section. I said, "You guys may want to revise this." His name's Rick White, not Eric. Goodness, how, how did and that's not the first time somebody is like completely butchered. And and, and Rob, Rob's really good at uh yeah. at pointing out like the things they say that are just like completely like wrong. Yeah. Uh, about like whether it's about the Atlantic League or like the Staten Island situation in general, but like yeah. like the president's name, it takes a two second Google search. Oh no, yeah, like really Spectrum One, like and they're a legitimate news outlet. Spectrum One News is legitimate. And it's just like, and you got the quote from him too. It's like if you got the quote from, him, you know his name's Rick White. Mistakes happen, I guess, but. uh Keeping with the theme of the Atlantic League, I guess we could finally start to talk about play nearly an hour into the show uh, on the field here. So we'll talk Atlantic League real quick, and then we'll go through the rest of the leagues, and we'll see where we run out of time at. So here we go. Uh, first team up this week. We haven't talked about this team really at all. We've seldom talked about them uh, for that much, and that is the York Revolution. They're currently riding a one-game losing streak, although I'm pretty sure they won their previous three in a row, so I mean, good for them. Five and five in the last ten, four and a half out of the division lead, 20 and 24 on this season. 
two and one against Lancaster and two and one against Long Island this past week. They have another three at home against Long Island and another three on the road against West Virginia this upcoming week. So what's the deal with the York Revolution? It's a classic York Revolution team in the sense that they're going to score a lot of runs and the pitching has not been great. Luckily for them, the pitching in general, like across the league, is has not been good as we've covered many, many times on the show. But you know that that's kind of it's a classic York Revolution team in that sense, and they're going to be streaky for that reason. As you think back to the 2019 season, they were probably like the streakiest team on the history of the planet, and uh, in, in the most extreme sense of the word. Uh, but you know they're playing better baseball of late. They're 20 and 24, only a game back of of Lancaster in that North Division. Uh, You know, but I mean, if you look at that North Division as a whole, the Long Island Ducks, they just came off a sweep of the West Virginia power. So they're playing they're playing much better baseball uh, right now. So it makes that it makes the prospect of trying to come back in the North Division probably a little bit tougher. Uh, but you know, a wild card spot is certainly, is certainly very much in the mix. Like if you're looking at the non-division leaders, if they're the first wild card spot, the revs are only three games out. There's certainly a chance for them to come back again. It's going to come down to that pitching staff though. It's going to come down to the starting rotation and finding guys who are able to give them quality innings, uh, because they're going to score runs. They've always scored runs. Uh, it's just a matter the pitching's got to, the, the, the pitching is going to need to be there if they're going to make a run. And, you know, it, it's been, at least during this winning streak, been much better. So lately it's been good for the season. It hasn't been so great, but if they can, if their pitching can continue, uh, to, to pitch much better than they did at the beginning of the season, we could be talking about a team that's, that's in the wild card hunt down the stretch. Yeah. That's the thing that's weird about this team is you figure the, the high points coming on hot now. They're starting to figure everything out here. So I kind of chalked them up to a wild card. Obviously, Lexington that we're going to talk about in a little bit is the team that's going to win the South Division. And you figure Long Island is probably going to wind up winning the North. So it's really you're chasing down that last wild card spot, which there really isn't a team out of right now. Perhaps you could say West Virginia, but even them, it's a stretch. And Gastonia's a little bit of a stretch at the moment. So... Everyone in the North Division is still very much alive for that final spot. I, I agree they are hitting pretty well. They're a good hitting team, but they always are, like you said. I am curious to see if they kind of keep this hot pace up. They have a hot Long Island team, like you mentioned, that they have to play this week, and then one of a weaker team in uh, West Virginia after that. It's just I don't know about them in the sense of there's a lot around them that's doing well. Like, Southern Maryland's still playing well. You have a Gastonia team that's not that far behind them. What, about a game back, two games back of them, uh, standing-wise, of a wild-card spot, possibly. You have a Lancaster team that, granted, is not that great. They're only a game in front of them, but still, they are in front of them. That That is a bit of an issue in my mind, at least a little bit here. So, I'm not sure you know, how that's going to wind up working out. I would say Southern Maryland is definitely the better team of the two. I think York will finish ahead of Lancaster. I do. I I, I mean, I'm just, I'm very low on Lancaster in general. I mean, their pitching <laughs> is so horrific, like, that I, I just can't see them. I can't see, it's amazing, again, that they're 21 and 23. 
at the moment. So I, I do think when it, when it eventually comes down to it, I think York will be ahead of them. Uh, but I agree. I, I think the Blue Crabs are definitely the better team, um, are, are definitely better than York. But hey, listen, York's been playing really well lately. We'll have to see how that how that shakes out within the next uh, within the next week or so. I think we'll start to get a lot of questions answered about this team. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I just do want to point out one thing here for the uh, Lancaster Barnstormer ERA check. They're sitting at an even eight right now. Oh, okay. They are getting better. It's well, I, I thought they were. I thought they were just under seven last week. See, oh, this okay. has to be a weekly tradition now. We yeah. have to do. We have to do the team ERA check. Quick, okay. I'm pretty sure ALPB Roundups listening to this, and being that he is a he's the resident stat dude in this whole, I guess, kind of indie ball media landscape, and he's big into like charts and stuff. If you could find a way to chart this, bro, so that way we could see, like, at the end of the year, how this whole all went. I would be very, very happy with that. Like, if you could do that, mad props to you for that. So, because <laughs> he I does th- love it. he does love his charts and graphs. Exactly. So I feel like this is the perfect time for either a chart or a, like maybe one of those data point graphs to see where everything went. Like, yeah, I, I'm just saying. I think that'd be perfect for it. But yeah, now they are they're about one point two six clear of the next highest team and. Scored run-wise, uh, I don't think anyone else is really even close. I think it's an 86. Yeah, it's an 86 running gap. My God, Lancaster sucks at pitching. It's I. It, it's again. It is ge- genuinely shocking that they're 21 and 23, and uh, it, it really does you know make you wonder about the league as a whole pitching wise, the fact that a team like that could still be 21 and 23. Uh, and, but you know, oh, now, now, now it just popped into my mind that the mound's going to be moved back within the next month. And I'm now horrified again. Oh God. It is let's, get let's, bad. Keep the, let's keep the positive vibes. Let's keep the positive vibes. All right. So then I won't even throw out the possibility of Lancaster stumbling ass backwards into a wild card spot and somehow going to a league final. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's ignore that and just talk about the amazing Lexington uh, legends who to this point have a winning percentage of nearly 700 and are riding a five-game winning streak and have, uh, well, 28 wins in about, oh, 40 or so contests. It's it's really incredible at this point. I mean, they've been so dominant and... It literally has not been close. Like there's, they are so good, and it's so not close to like anyone else. It's like it's it's insane, and that's. I mean, the lineup is stacked. The starting rotation has has been really good. The bullpen has been great. I mean, I I could go through all the numbers, but uh, one guy I did want to point out that I, I guess that. If you could call his start to the season slow, I mean, I guess that's, I mean, it was, it, which kind of means average for everybody else, uh, but he has really started to turn it up as Keon Barnum. Oh, uh, yeah. He's, he, he, he's, uh, 
at least early in the season. He was hitting for a decent average, but not as much power as he did in Chicago. Uh, yeah, that is not the case anymore. He's now he's his average up to 275, OPS up to 911 home runs on the season now. So it, his power has really started to come in bunches now. It's really propelled this Lexington offense, and not that they. Not that they wouldn't have been fine if he if he continued to be average, but you know that's just how good they are. But I mean, if you I mean their team OPS is still uh, is still nearly nine hundred, which at this point in the season is just absolutely nuts. And uh, it, you know it just I mean this team was just built as an absolute juggernaut, and they're probably they're in my view they're the only team in indie ball that has done a great job in just replacing pitching that leaves because they lose pitching a good amount, but they continue to just, just restock and reload. And then that's why they're as good as they are. I'm sure they'll continue to do it. They'll continue. Probably they'll probably continue to lose guys here and there, but they've done a great job of replacing pitching. And I think that's the reason they are so much better than any other team in the Atlantic league right now. Yeah. I don't understand how they're doing this. I know the guys in the front office clearly have connections for this, but even still to be on like what an 84 win pace in a 120 game season or something stupidly crazy like that. It's like, how, how are you able to do this? And I mean, like most teams, if, like you said, if a Keon Barnett wasn't doing anything, then they just kind of be dead in the water and that'd be that, but not because Keon Barnum's figuring it out. You have DJ Peterson, who's done tremendously so far. You have Courtney Hawkins doing great. You have Pugues. that's doing great. Cole Sturgeon looks good. I mean, like everyone, like there isn't a weak spot on the team. Like you keep going through, like even a guy like Baldequin, who you'd think, oh okay, he's all right. He's batting nearly 400, and you go, oh well, it must be a small sample size. And then you go, oh wait, he's played 36 games, so it's not really. It's like there isn't a weak spot on the team. Like, and I know we keep every time we talk about, it, we keep saying the same thing, but the team is just. It, they're a juggernaut. There's no other way really around it. Because, like like you said, they lose a player, they replace him with almost a major league quality player. I mean, oh, you could argue that's what happened here when they lost, uh, oh, who'd they lose recently? They got picked up. It could be Nipede, and I think it may be him. I wasn't sure if it was him or someone else after him. Yeah, it was Beggs and Singrani. They lose those two. You replace them with two major league quality arms and Adams and Jeffries. Like, really? That's just not fair. It really isn't yes. fair. And you almost wonder how they're able to do that and how it helps is. Literally added Jeremy Jeffries, who last year in 2020 with the Cubs had a 154 ERA in the MLB, in, the, in Major League Baseball, had a 154 ERA in 23 and a third innings, and they were able to pick him up to go pitch in the Atlantic League. It's just stupid. It's, it's it's not a fair fight. It isn't at this it, point. It's like here's not like if we were doing the rankings that I talked about wanting to do at the very beginning of the year, and then it just I, I couldn't get it together quick enough. So that's the next year idea. Lexington would have to be a unanimous number one. There's just no, there's no way around it. They are by far the best team. We're gonna talk about some other teams across the other leagues. Uh, we're gonna try and get them all in here, but. 
like the only other two teams would be like an Evansville or a Florence. And as you're going right. to see when we talk about them in just a second, because we're going to go to the Frontier League after we finish our thoughts on this, they're pretty evenly matched. And so I feel like just Lexington, by being virtue of being one of the top two leagues, the Atlantic League and obviously the American Association being the top two, I kind of view them more and more as neck and neck now, although I'd still probably give the edge to the Atlantic League just because the rosters have no rules, just suggestions. And as a result, you're able to just build yourself a very good team. And just given how head and shoulders above everybody else they are, I have a very hard time believing that in a five-game series that any team would be able to take three of five from Lexington. I just have a very, very hard time buying that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to say, but I mean they're they're just that good at this point. Uh, With that, we'll move on to the Frontier League. I know we talked a lot about them already, but we do have actual play on the field to talk about. I suppose we could start by talking about the Evansville at Florence series, and then if we have a little bit of time uh, before we move on to the American Association, we'll talk Southern Illinois. But uh, the series at hand, Evansville at Florence, it was a three-game set, middle of the week. You pitted the top two teams in the Ameri- or in the Frontier League, my mistake, against each other. And might I say, it was an entertaining series. Evansville, you know, didn't get the best end of it. They, in fact, nearly got swept as a result of it. But I will say they put up a good fight. They One was a pitcher's duel that ended in the home run derby. That was game two, which wound up with uh, Evansville taking the win there. But at the end of the day, they finished one game back of the Florencioles. That's the result of blowing an early lead and not being able to hang in there with the slugfest here. So... We'll start with game one. It was a five to six loss for the Otters. Uh, they held the lead early three to one and then slowly Florence chipped away at it. Ultimately, they had a tie game going into the ninth and well, they got walked off. The Otters did resulting in their first loss there. Not exactly great for them. Uh, Axel Johnson, a fairly new guy to the Yalls, released from the Grizzlies not that long ago, had himself a nice coming out party. Two for four for him with a pair of RBIs. Uh, Broward had a good day, as well as um, Tenney and Lytle, all playing very well for them, all having multi-hit games. So, uh, certainly a good performance offensively from the Yalls, and the bullpen did a very good job here. Conversely, no one on the Otter side really did a bad job pitching. Everyone was, well, was in the bounds of what you'd expect, just they unfortunately didn't get enough. Uh, Cordero and Penner, they had multi-hit games. Everybody else had a hit, uh, exceptions being uh, Felix and DeJesus, but outside of that, everyone got a hit. It it just seems like they just couldn't hang on at the end of the day. They ran out of gas in the tank, and that's going to happen from time to time. Yeah, and uh, and the one guy I wanted to point out, I mean, in the in the back end of that Florence bullpen that really gave them a chance to walk it off at the end was Sean Hughes. I mean, Sean Hughes in this game was was lights out out of the bullpen. He's been lights out all year. He's a 159 ERA. He tossed two shutout innings, did walk two, but struck out five in those two innings. So he was electric 
out of the back end of that um, of that Florence bullpen is a very very entertaining game. I mean, you would expect nothing less between these two teams. So, uh, but it is very entertaining game, and um, thanks to the performance of Sean Hughes, really at the back end of that bullpen, uh, Florence was able to walk them off and uh, give themselves the the early advantage in that series. Yep, definitely there. And so, if offense really wasn't your thing. The next day really provided for you with a, just a pitcher's duel through and through. Each side did not get a run until the eighth inning. So that tells us the kind of game it was. Uh, O'Reilly did a, a tremendous job in the mound. Seven and two thirds, four hits, three walks, one earned run, and seven strikeouts for him. Just a tremendous outing out of that, uh, out of him there. Abathini, he comes in, strikes out three, walks one, and allows a hit in an inning and a third of work. And then Logan Sawyer came in for that uh, one in- extra inning where he strikes out two, doesn't allow a base runner, and does exactly what you need from him to send it to a home run derby. On the flip side, uh, everyone on the on the Florence side did just about as well as you could ask. Uh, I think it's via. I'm going to go with via Lobos. Via Lobos. That's probably right because I suck at pronouncing things. And also, now that I look at it, you're definitely right. It's Via Lobos. So, Via Lobos had a tremendous outing himself. Seven innings, four hits, no runs, one walk, and five strikeouts. That's pretty damn good. You can't ask for much more than that. Cheek comes in, obviously surrenders the one run in two innings of work, four hits, three strikeouts, still not a bad outing in relief. And then uh, Dotri comes in with the one inning in extra inning, strikes out one. So obviously, as you can imagine, there really wasn't much offense. Uh, I will say Gordon, uh, McEnany, and Cordero again come up for the Otters, they do try to provide some offense, although there really just wasn't much to be had today. On the flip side, there was even less to be had for the Yalls, and Crackpot was the only guy that really got anything going. He had a two-hit game. There's a couple of one-hits sprinkled in there, but nothing much. In the end, though, Otters take this one 6-1, to one, the Home Run Derby. Definitely provides some excitement, the Home Run Derby does, but obviously some people will not like that that one had to be ended that way. We'll obviously be a, a little sore that it was a home run derby and not an actual play on the field that got them to that result yeah it was a it was super entertaining uh, super entertaining game see personally I, I'm always like people people always ask like oh would you rather have a pitcher's duel or a slug fest to be honest with you I kind of like both yeah. I think I think there's I think there's a place for both and I think both are entertaining and just in the same way, the previous game and and the third game as we'll get into uh was was entertaining this was as well i mean it's just a great pitching matchup i mean two i mean you could call them the aces of their uh of the of their staff and o'reilly and villalobos although o'reilly has only made three starts to this point he has certainly um made him uh, has emerged as definitely one of evansville's best arms i mean he has a 1.66 era after the, after this terrific outing of seven and two thirds gets given up a run striking out seven uh but villalobos with seven shutout innings um he's been he's been a great arm for florence all year um, lowering his ERA to 2.75, and of course the home run derby. Whatever you think of it, it was uh, it, it was definitely it, it was fun. You wish you almost wish the home run derby is a little bit closer between the teams. Yeah, uh, just but I mean, just I mean the first two games, it, it just shows you how I mean how evenly matched these teams are, and this series really showed that. 
you know, the the pitching was really just that good in this game, but hey, uh, Florence, Florence was able to take it. Exactly. There's not much you could really do about that when you just get beat like that. It's, it's perfectly, pretty evenly matched and just comes down to who can hit the most home runs at the very end. So, yeah. Then we I go think up. I said Flor. I think I said Florence took it. I meant Evansville. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Anywho, uh, so we go to last night's game, the last one in the series. Florence jumped out to an early lead. They scored four in the first inning, and then they tacked on, added an extra run to make it a five-run game in the sixth. Evansville tied it, made it five-five, and then proceeded to give up five more runs in the sixth inning. Okay, fine. So in the seventh inning. Evansville gets those five runs right back. They tie it back up. And then, unfortunately, uh, they surrender another three runs in the seventh and eighth innings. They ran out of runs. And in the end, Evansville drops this one uh, 13-10. to Ultimately, not a great start they got. Not a good relief outing from really anybody. When you want to get down to it, Lewis gets tagged with the loss, although he only surrendered one unearned run. He walked two, surrendered a hit, so not great there. Uh, Abathini did all right in his outing, but I mean it was point two uh, innings pitch, so not great there. Flip side, Holland did not pitch well either in his start for Florence. Yeah. He surrendered eight earned runs. So that's never good. Uh, Wheeler comes in in relief. He surrenders two runs in a third of an inning of work. And then from there, though, when they brought in Wagner, Craigie, and McDonald, it was done. Uh, two hits, only two more base runners on the whole day after uh, those three got in there. So certainly a solid outing from the Florence pitching staff in relief, I would call it, with the exception of Wheeler. And as you can imagine, there was a parade of multi-hitters, uh, multi-hit games from uh, hitters today. Uh, Gordon, Davis, Crane, McAnamy, and uh, let's see, Penner, the final for the multi-hitters on the Otter side. On the flip side for the Yalls, uh, Crackpot and Axel Johnson again, proving that was a bad idea to let him go. And Brower again, providing multi-hit games. Brower and Crackpot actually with three hit games as well as McAnamy. So... A lot of offense here if you didn't like the pitcher's duel. And uh, there's a lot to be taken away from this game as well. Yeah, there, there was something for, there's something for everybody uh, in this series. So if you love Slugfest, I mean, this one was for you. Certainly not great pitching on either end of it. But, but I mean, but what a day uh, for, the, for the two lineups, of course. Um, Trevor Crapport was uh, had a big day for Florence. Uh, really propelled them to the win. Three for four, scoring three runs with a home run, or excuse me, or with three runs scored, I meant to say, and three runs driven in. Uh, but he, he was uh, a big day for really both lineups. And, uh, and you know, the pitching struggled, but that, that'll happen from time to time. But, I mean, a 13-10 to 10 final kind of speaks for itself. And, I mean, just what an entertaining series between the two teams. Of course, they, uh, coming into the series, they were, they were, they were tied. And now it's just one game separates, um, Florence has a one game lead over Evansville. So you certainly hope, you certainly circle the date that they're going to do this again. Um, and I mean, maybe a playoff. Well, I guess they can't really meet in a playoff series, but, uh, or maybe they can. Uh, yeah. But uh, playoff series wise, they cannot because they're in the same division. Rats. Yeah, that division is actually really good too. 
yeah, it, it's it's really good. But yeah, I mean, just a a great, um, just a really entertaining series. I mean, all three games completely lived up to the hype and gave gave those fans a treat. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure out what we could draw out of this series before we move on, because really, what I could gather from it is that we do know the best two teams in this league. The Miners have been on and off. They've struggled a little bit in their series against New Jersey, just on the field-wise, and they do seem a little bit vulnerable. These two teams are pretty evenly matched, though. And, I mean, when you want to look on it aggregate-wise, it's not like you saw this huge of a win for the Yalls. It was a four-game difference when you look at run aggregate. So... That's an easy enough to flip either way. That's one better start on uh, on uh, yeah, Thursday. To be honest, to be honest with you, I, I think that's kind of the only thing you can take for, for, mm-hmm. from a series that's this close. I mean, listen, in a three game series, somebody's got to win it. So, I mean, just really close games, and I think that's the only thing you can really take. That hey, th- these two teams are evenly matched. Uh, they're they're really good. I mean, both the rotation, the bullpen, uh, and the lineups they they all had their moments during this series. So I think the only real thing you can like a long term takeaway you can take away from it uh, is is not so much the difference between the teams. It's just that both of them are really good, and uh, it, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a fun race to see who comes out uh, who comes out on top in that division. Yep, absolutely. And so we'll just quickly cover uh, Southern Illinois because they have been on a hot streak as of late, seven and three in their last ten. Currently, they are on a two-game losing skid, but they were three and zero against Juliet, and they are one and two against Windy City in the past week, twenty-four and twenty-one on the year, four and a half out of a playoff spot, aka the lead in their division. With three against Evansville and three against Florence this week, actually, for them. They play at Evansville and then they play at home against uh, the Yalls. This is going to be one hell of a fight for the Miners. Although I will say, they are the best pitching team in the league. When you look at the stats on them, man, are they a good pitching team. Hitting-wise, not so much. But pitching, they are really, really good. As in, their team ERA is a 3-6-5. But when you look at the top part of this, they have some really solid arms. And over the last seven days, they haven't really had a bad start, if you want to look at that. Yeah, not not, not at all. I think that's this, that's been the strength of the Southern Illinois team. And you wondered, I mean, with pitching that good, a hot streak is almost inevitable at mm. some point. Uh, and I think that's kind of what you're seeing from them now. But listen, the schedule gets tougher now. And they're going to go take on Evansville this weekend and that's going to be a a really really exciting series uh and i i can't wait for it i mean it's i mean we'll see i mean of course evansville's got a good pitching staff as well so uh it's gonna be a really a really fun matchup and uh for southern illinois purposes you hope um you hope some guys can step can continue to step up i guess i should say uh in that lineup because they have been as of late uh, and that that's what's really propelled them to this streak to go along with their to go along with their good starting rotation to go along with their good bullpen so uh it, that that's a really fun series it's a big series uh for southern illinois as they continue to to tr- continue to try to climb back in, into this into this division race they're four and a half out at the moment um at least behind Evansville specifically, they're behind three and a half. So certainly it, it's a big opportunity for them to make up ground. Yeah, absolutely there. I will say 
currently it's really three guys carrying the offense. And uh, uh, Godino, Walters, or Nolan Early, I believe is how it is. Uh, any case, Early is batting 600, just about 583 at this point, and he's slugging a thousand. So he's doing an awful lot of his job on offense. What I'd like to see pitching wise is you know you're going to get a handful of really good starts from guys like Cunningham, Johnson, Austin had a good start as well. So you know they're going to give you about five to six solid innings. You know you have the bullpen arms to be able to carry you through. Westcott also gave you a good start this past week, although he does pitch to contact a lot. There's no way around that. You're going to have guys get on base with him. There's, that's just something you have to come to terms with. That said, I'd really like to see Gunnar Kynes turn this on now. Uh, yeah. It's starting to get concerning here that he has not really flipped the switch yet. You could very well argue even that he's been their worst starting pitcher to this point this year. And I think I mentioned in one of the previews, either on the show or on the Instagram page, where I said there is some concern with this season in Australia that wasn't exactly great. I didn't think it was going to be that big of a problem because historically it hasn't been. But it does seem like it is turning into a bit of an issue. A 486 ERA is just not good enough right now. He needs to have it be a little bit better. And, you know, you got guys like Austin pulling their weight, Johnson pulling their weight, Cunningham has. Schmidt had a rough start this week, but by and large, he's been one of their more reliable starters. If Kynes can just get his ERA down to, at this point, I'd settle for like four. You, you could really see a huge run from this team, but they they need to get him going. And they need to get the bats going too, because like I said, there really is like three or four guys on this team that hit. And now that they're getting healthy on top of that too, they have a real shot at this, I think. They just need to start hitting more consistently. They need better guys, or they need more guys to start hitting rather. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's kind of, it's very surprising that Kynes um, has has been quite inconsistent this year, because that's not, not really what his track record has shown, but still time for for, uh, for him to turn around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. So uh, we are short on time, like we mentioned. So we're going to leave the American Association alone. Next week, I think we'll probably wind up just doing a whole review of all the indie leagues and where they're at at the midway point this year. But with that said, we are kind of at the, uh, at the limit here. So we will plug and we will get out of here. So... If you would like to follow the show, you can do so on Twitter at IndieBallPod. You could do so on Instagram at ALFB underscore news or at IndieBallReport on Instagram there. So you could do that. You could find everything we post on the social media. That's like kind of a an article or whatever. And you can also find the episodes and show notes on the website IndieBallReport.com. And then likewise... You can find the show wherever you find podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podomatic, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and the works there as well. Uh, so with that said, do we have anything else left to add? A uh, quick mention here. The New Jersey Devils made a trade last night. I'm very excited about it. They traded for Ryan Graves from the uh, like a 26-year-old defenseman from the Colorado Avalanche headed, headed to uh, the Garden State. And uh, as, you, as some of you know, I'm a big Devils fan, and boy, do the Devils need help uh, on the defense. So it, it, was a, it was a very exciting thing for me to see, and hopefully we can actually find a good defenseman for once. So that'd be, that'd be really exciting for, for the Devils. So I'm excited for that trade. Yep. Excited to see how he turns out. 
And he's a solid uh, second pair defenseman, definitely there. And you could have probably ended the sentence that the Devils need a lot of help. They do. So, uh, also hockey related. Only thing I have to add next week: expansion draft and regular draft. Rangers, please, for the love of God, go get Cole Sillinger. And I really don't care who they who you lose in the expansion draft. I'd be kind of upset with Kevin Rooney being gone, but I can live with that. I can live with Ghost Jay being gone. I can live with losing Colin Blackwell. There really is nobody I'm that afraid of losing. Or please, dear God, take Brett Howden. Any of those options, I really don't care. None of them matter that much. They're fourth liners. So, that's all I got. We'll get out of here now. And so, like we say every week, don't forget to play ball. Okay. Did you hear that? I only got part of it, but yeah.